This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Quentin Skinner's seminal lecture on a genealogy of liberty. Helen, kick us off. In his lecture on liberty, Quentin Skinner mentions Hobbes and his notion of freedom or limitation in relation to the body. The body, of course, is the ultimate limiting factor in human life and freedom. We all die. Death is a temporal constraint that means that makes the time we do have worth living. Aging, the gradual death in life, gives value to youth and beauty and compounds the limiting factor of the physical boundary of our body. Through limitation, we can enjoy. Through limitation, we can create. Without fingers, we couldn't paint. Without mouths, we couldn't speak. But limitation, like everything in our universe, is dialectic. In addition to inspiring desire, it also engenders an agony so painful that we aspire to rid ourselves of even the merest recognition of it. The repression of the understanding of limitation, though, in death, in lack, creates greater torment. In not recognizing the nature of our freedom generated by limitation, we have a reverse return of the repressed, capitalist unfreedom, to use Todd McGowan's term. This unfreedom is the illusion of freedom in repression. The worst of death drive, a utopian cult that looks momentarily pretty, but that in actual fact imprisons us on both sides of surplus value. In understanding the true nature of our limited freedom, we can rid ourselves of this ersatz prettiness, capitalism or the flowers that cover our chains. We come to we can come to terms with the ah, I just clicked too far. We can come to terms with the chains in which we have bound ourselves, and we can pick the living flower. I once read the story of a yogi in India who was so connected to the absolute, so pure of being that he had overcome his bodily need to eat, subsisting on only one grain of rice a day. Similarly, I learned on a podcast about dictators that propaganda in North Korea told that Kim Jong-un was so close to the divine that he rid himself of every downside of being human, including the need to shit and pee. These cathartic fantasies might seem foreign and ridiculous, but they actually follow the logic of the ideology we imbibe on a daily basis in the universe of capitalism. These fairy tales of fossils, their ridiculousness indicates in relief the existence of a catastrophe that besets us all, each and every speaking being, when we are born. They tell the story of a possible oneness in being, a place beyond want and lack, a divinity beyond antagonism living in human form. Every advert, every piece of corporate propaganda pretending to be art tells this story. And the fact that we believe in them, on whatever level, however briefly, shows us that we are all beset by the same tragedy. Born too soon, we are torn from the womb tune and torn again into language and towards self-consciousness. We speak and speak. speech is indicative of lack. Frustration through lack generates language, our lacking of an imagined wholeness that came before the torment of being human. As humans, we are condemned through language to experience antagonism at the level of our own subjectivity. We are the antagonism of the universe experiencing itself. This is a terrifying notion. In our bloody collection of cells, we are the freedom of the universe. And we only experience that freedom because we are stuck within our fleshly frames. Is this it? Surely this can't be it. This impossible experience come, can't come with such a downside or in fact exist because of such a downside. I know there was a oneness that came before. I know there is a world beyond antagonism. This knowledge is underscored by the constant call of ideology that tells me I can synthesize through imaginary transformation, that I can return to oneness by purchasing a car or reading a book or getting an award or recognition or being the CEO of a company. This propensity to believe in oneness hobbles us and undercuts our potential for a rational approach to life, one where the stakes are lowered and death drive is transformed into an intensity for life through the antagonism of life. Ideology weaponizes the notion of freedom as a disciplinary mechanism that neuters any reasonable understanding of lack and contradiction, these two forces that are responsible for human life. 
When our lives are bitten by contradiction, as they always are, through death, through illness, through depression, through failure, ideology tells us that because we are free, this is our fault. The illusion of freedom keeps us in line in a world where we are demonstrably unfree. There's a self-help book for that. You should have gone to therapy. Oh, you only worked eight hours a day? Well, that was your mistake. You should have worked 10. This is a function of ideology that, oh, I've read that bit already. I've said it, repeated myself. I will move on a little bit. <laughs> the doctrine of capitalist ideology is that, we're, um, is that we are personally free, that we never are because of the limiting facts of body, death and contradiction, factors that capitalism must neuter because they prove its utopian logic to be false. Capitalism must dress itself in the clothes of freedom as a marketing strategy because it is itself a highly limiting, unfree system, precisely because of ideology. We are free, we are told, to create and innovate, but any true innovation that points to the emancipation of the human subject cannot be valued by capital because capitalist value relies on sacrifice. We cannot roll out the vaccine universally to all those who are frail in every country in the world, those who have health conditions that mean they might become very ill for a very long time and perhaps die or incubate the virus to the point where a new variant is born because that isn't profitable. At a certain point, rational vaccination would eradicate the virus as a world-arresting disease, and that would mean no profit could be made for those who manufacture the vaccine. The extremity of responses to an insight like the above, made even by Trevor Noah recently on The Late Show, is demonstrative of ideology. Truth that exposes the unfreedom of the market system must be quashed lest we become reasonably free, lest the wheels come off the merry-go-round of toxic utopian accumulation. The greatest trick the market ever pulled was to seep into every crevice of our existence, lubricated by ideology to make existence impossible without adherence to the market. Such is the extent of our capitalist unfreedom. Just wondering if I should skip to a little bit. I'm just going to skip a couple of paragraphs and go to the end. It's reasonable to worry that one of the most successful television series um, at the moment is yet another palatable vessel for ideology. When we watch Succession, we cathartically giggle at the toxic business practices of media billionaires as they nihilistically puppeteer so-called political agendas. The writing is brilliant, it's funny and entertaining, we are offered a glimpse into the glitzy vacuousness of the billionaire class. We can perhaps say that we risk first shifting our gaze from mater the material reality into the realm of the imagination, therefore doing nothing to remedy the problems of this class. We might also say that we desire to sustain this circus always there to entertain us and outrage us and soothe us in our indignation. But there is a truth in succession, and it is truer than the juicy imagined reality of the billionaire class to which we are privy through watching it. These figures feel precarious. Succession shows us that even the billionaires are unfree. They feel as though at any moment they could lose their jets and their relevance and their overpriced Manhattan apartments. The toxic jouissance of capitalist unfreedom is that it destroys everything Every sincere uh, social relation, every institution, every family, every home, replacing it with a sickening so-called enjoyment. The threat that all of this can be taken away. All that is solid mates melts into air. All that is sacred is profaned. Unfreedom becomes hard-baked into every human relation. Forever... Sorry, I had to text it much to myself because my printer wasn't working, so I keep skipping. Forever presented with false novelty, value becomes valueless. And the only thing that sustains it is a threat that everything will be taken away. The, the Roys, despite their billions, feel so precarious that they must fight at all times with heart attack inducing antagonism to keep clasping onto their material conditions, lest these be blown away by the churning winds of the market. But there is a freedom beyond the worst of the state's stoked market system. It's a freedom in limitation, a freedom in antagonism. In recognizing this limited freedom, we needn't be tossed to precarity as a return in the repression of recognizing our limitations. We needn't be, riven, be driven to leaning into toxic utopian logic 
on the other side of which is always enemy making conflict, anger and dis- dissatisfaction. And I will skip out the last bit because it goes on and on and on. So there we go. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> All right. Nina, what have you got? Well, I think the the context that we're in as we're confronting uh, the imminent possibility of the introduction of vaccine passports uh, in the UK. Um, Helen mentioned before we came on that they're already, in a sense, operative. And in some ways, we already have a kind of vaccine passport system. At least it's very difficult to do certain things like travel um, without some proof of vaccination and so on. And some countries, of course, have already implemented quite authoritarian um systems. Um, so I think the context for thinking about Quentin Skinner's very, very beautiful and very elegantly done lecture, um, for which he doesn't provide us very respectfully with any particular conclusions, but rather maps out, um, if you like, the history of the past three or four centuries of uh, thinking about, I suppose, almost five centuries at this point, of thinking about um, freedom in all of its different um, aspects and he particularly kind of focuses on this relationship between a kind of liberal concept of freedom as a kind of something that is either negative or positive and is to do with a certain kind of uh, individual or an image of an individual um, and he kind of con- contrasts it or places it alongside uh, a, a kind of different kind of tradition, which is perhaps a kind of more teleological tradition, which is to do with um, freedom being uh, an expression of one's own nature, uh, paradoxically. And I think we can. He, he talks about Hegel. Um, he talks about um, Arendt in terms of freedom being politics or freedom being, uh, in a Christian sense, the adherence to a form of worship um, as the telos of one's. Uh, being. And I think we could also include Spinoza, who has a very paradoxical notion of freedom as well, be- which is one that comes from a form of determinism, um, which is to map our own uh, our own understanding of the of the of everything around us, which is to say God, and within that the the way in which we're determined, we have then a kind of uh, a relative or limited uh, freedom. And there's a very interesting discussion in the lecture about um, dependency um, and in particular how dependency is one way of thinking about what it is to be unfree. Um, And he talks, Quentin Skinner talks about slavery. He also talks about colonialism and what it means to be beholden to a a state who makes vote, who votes on your behalf, if you like, or a, 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 you know, a situation where you can't participate in a political decision making and he also talks about women and I think uh, historically and there's something kind of very fascinating about this idea of dependency and I think when we're talking about the liberal subject and the fact that we're in a situation now where so many people are presenting what we might call a post-liberal position or at least acknowledging the limitations of liberalism um some of which are implicitly clear from Quentin Skinner's very um, wide-ranging presentation, which is to say, if you begin with an image of the individual um, and a sort of notion of liberty that is tied to uh, an expression of 
what one wishes to do and whether this is kind of constrained or uh, compelled or whether one is, you know, not able to do what one is, what wants to do. Um, this presupposes not only a very specific notion of the indi- individual, which forecloses the fact that we are, in fact, already in relations of dependency all the time with each other, um, that we are dependent on each other for vast swathes of our lives, not only as children, but also as adults. And we often enter into relations of dependency um, in marriage and, and so on. And we, and we kind of uh, create relations of dependency when we, if and when we have children. And all of these things trouble this idea of the, the liberal individual as this kind of somehow freely choosing individual that's spinning in the void. And I think in our current moment, what is happening with this kind of individuating bureaucracy, which assigns everybody a whole series of numbers, you know, whether it's your negative bank account, you know, your your debt, your national insurance number, your passport number, your vaccine passport number, you know, that that from the standpoint of the state, you are nothing other than a kind of uh, sort of uh, numerical unit in certain ways. And obviously, this is massively um, expanded through the use of the internet and data mining and surveillance and self-surveillance. There's very interesting points that Skinner makes about how censorship is a form of um, we often self-censor as a form of um, not wanting to, if you like, disrupt the situation there. So there are kind of silent forms of unfreedom too. And I think we're heading into even more of these kind of very depressing forms of acquiescence and coercion. And I think we need to think, all of us need to think very, very carefully not only about the sort of pre-existing critiques of liberalism from what Skinner presents as the an alternative tradition which is a tradition of telos and thinking about the nature of the human whether we're thinking about that in terms of relationality in terms of our communal practices uh, and our responsibilities um, to one another and the fact that we do indeed have a nature that we are not infinitely malleable and it is not necessarily reactionary to talk about the essence of what it means to be human. I think it becomes a very complicated question. Skinner doesn't go into, let's say, whether they, there might be differences between what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, for example, which is obviously an extremely contentious uh, and difficult question. Although one, again, I think we should confront head on, um, particularly when the liberal subject, as Illich and others and many others uh, have pointed out, is a kind of neutered, neutral subject which is the the subject of uh, the exploitation of of labor in which sex is indifferent even though in reality uh, we're all sexed there is no there's no neutral individual um, there are only sexed beings with a nature um, which we which we share to a large degree and our freedom in that sense can only come from a kind of collective becoming and a kind of social understanding of our telos as a species. And I think we need to access not only that other tradition of thinking about relationality, dependency, and a kind of communal freedom and a communal power, um, and we need to mobilise it more or less immediately uh, against this uh, this state, which will just further encroach 
uh, on every every possible image and practice um, of freedom that we might individually and collectively uh, want to defend. And I think ev- I think it's incumbent on everybody to hold on to an image of what it means to them to be free, um, to be free um, in your own on your own terms, but also in relation to others, um, and the freedom to be social and to be political and all of these things, which I think are being um, taken away from us. Interesting stuff. All right. I'm up. Quentin Skinner has been giving this lecture on liberty for many years, and it shows. It's an immensely polished piece. Skinner's genealogy starts with Hobbes's argument that liberty is freedom from interference. He delves into what might count as interference, picking on Locke for being vague and giving Bentham credit for being more precise. He looks at existentialist accounts in which we interfere with our own freedom by self-censoring. He looks at Hegelian accounts in which freedom is framed as self-realization. Eventually, he introduces the version of of liberty he likes best. It's a neo-republican understanding in which freedom is pitched as freedom from dependence on the arbitrary will of others. But the lecture is not pitched as a straightforward argument for this view. It's pitched as intellectual history. Skinner explicitly says he is not a moralist, but it's very clear that this is the view he thinks best. Skinner has been doing this his whole career. He frames himself as a historian, not a moralist, and he uses the trappings of history to make normative arguments. Cambridge historians repress the normative in their narratives, but it always pops out sooner or later. At this point, most folks in the academy are wise to the trick, but it's still thrilling to see Skinner do it because he does it so well and so convincingly. There are even moments where he subtly hints that this is what he's up to. For Skinner, genealogy is always a form of critique. It's always an attempt to find some iteration of a concept that has been lost, to bring that lost version of the concept back into contemporary discussions. Over the course of his long career, Skinner has worked tirelessly to reintroduce Roman and small r Republican ideas back into our discussions. He's gotten pretty far with it. Over the past 25 years, a number of theorists have committed themselves to neo-Roman or neo-Republican positions. Philip Pettit's argument for Republicanism as an alternative to both liberal individualism and communitarianism made a big splash in contemporary political thought in the 90s. From there, things began heating up, and a variety of neo-Republicans came on the scene, folks like Isolde Hanahan and Frank Levitt. In recent years, Karl Marx has been increasingly pitched as a neo-Roman. Bruno Leopold's Citizen Marx thesis has been enormously influential in that regard. These neo-Republicans don't all agree, of course. Sometimes they argue that liberty is about avoiding dependence on the arbitrary will of another, as Skinner does here. Pettit uses a different word, domination. We are dominated by another when we are subject to their arbitrary power. These could be straightforwardly linked. We might say when we depend on someone's arbitrary will, we are ipso facto dominated by that will. But we could also split them up. Domination might be more demanding than mere dependence, or it might be expressly tied to something like the Marxist idea of exploitation in a way that dependence is not. There's also the question of what counts as arbitrary. The will or power of another might be arbitrary whenever that other does not in some way have to answer to us. 
Many Republicans argue against monarchy on the grounds that the monarch is not answerable to the subjects. But we could also argue that this will or power is arbitrary because it issues decisions that treat the subjects as a mere means to an end. An elected representative might be answerable to the subjects in some institutional sense, but still vote in a manner that shows no regard for their interests or which treats them as a mere means. Conversely, a ruler could be unanswerable to the subjects institutionally, but rule in a manner that shows substantial regard for their interests and which takes them seriously as ends in themselves. Some neo-Republicans are more concerned with making institutions answerable to citizens, while others are more interested in getting them to take citizens' interests seriously. And it is not obvious that these two things go together neatly, or in the way we tend to put them together nowadays. In the period of the Roman Principate, the Romans had a first citizen, whose power ostensibly stemmed from a consensus among the citizens. This consensus was never confirmed through any formal institutional procedure, although you could maybe argue the gift tax thing where the cities send the emperor a gift tax to acknowledge him is a formal institutional procedure, but it relied on the idea that the first citizen behave as if this consensus existed. And the fact that the first citizen behaved this way was often enough to make the consensus feel real to many people. The neo-Republicans do seem to agree that citizens ought to have equal political status, but there are further questions about what makes the status of citizen distinctive. Is citizenship significant because it entitles people to participate in the state, to exercise institutional checks on its decisions, or because it involves a set of further rights, which protect them from being economically dominated by one another. The idea that individuals exercise a real check on the power of the state seems far-fetched in large-scale modern republics with enormous populations. But perhaps such a check might exist at a collective level, especially for those citizens who are otherwise protected from relationships of economic dependence and might therefore participate in public life with greater freedom than others. Could a politics form around extending this protection to larger numbers of citizens so that citizens can participate in politics from a more equal position? Perhaps freedom depends in part on our ability to obtain the means of subsistence without depending on the market or on some spouse or life partner. There are probably four main schools of left-wing reformism in the West right now. Neo-Republicanism is one. The other three, I think, are Jürgen Habermas's deliberative democracy, Richard Wolff's workplace democracy, and old-school social democracy, like Bernie Sanders, which hopes to preserve or extend the legacy of social welfare institutions of the 20th century. On other podcasts I've done, I've talked at length about how much I despise the workplace democracy <laughs> argument. By blurring the distinction between employer and employee, it induces workers to internalize market incentives. Domination without the dominus makes domination harder to see and harder to challenge. Deliberative democracy is highly idealized. There is little reason to think that we are anywhere close to having an ideal deliberation or that any set of reforms would get us near to one. The legacy institutions of the 20th century have failed to stop austerity and appear to be mired in a process of managed decline. Is there something to neo-republicanism? If so, what would a neo-republican politics look like? If not, is left-wing reformism a dead end? I am interested in hearing what Helen and Nina think.
I mean, one thing that comes to mind actually is a sort of experience that I had during uh, the the kind of European student movement, I suppose. And and I went to visit um, a variety of uh, countries in Eastern Europe at a certain point, um, and Croatia and um, Serbia and Bosnia. And it's very interesting in those countries that formerly had uh, an experience of a kind of federal socialism, um, how differently uh, the occupations of universities and the um, democratic processes surrounding them were. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the main uh, features of um, these occupations, and this was in sort of 2009, 2010, um, so sort of more than a decade ago, um, was the use of the plenum which um, was not only used for the um, student movement, and and even the student movement was in fact a kind of uh, involved lots of other people in the in the cities and 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 where these things were taking place. It wasn't it wasn't merely a student uh, thing, but rather uh, every night, uh, for example, they would have a a plenum in which everybody um, gathered to kind of decide what was happening, what was going on, and to raise questions. Uh, and so on. And it was very uh, a moving experience, in fact, to be part of these uh, things, some of which have been running at this point for, you know, many, many days, even running into the hundreds of days. And it was a kind of process of a sort of deliberative, um, you know, democracy that was about the people. And indeed, the people were were everybody, in a sense, like everybody who, who wanted to participate. And um, it seemed to function in a much more um, useful way than these things do in the West. And I wondered whether it was because there partly there'd been a tradition of um these forms of social organizing um you know in in the time of the of Yugoslavia uh, and that people were kind of therefore more used to in a way managing themselves and 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 thinking of each other and themselves as being part of a of a people and the and the the model of the of the plenum. Um and I suppose the plenum is a is a, a an older model. In a way, it is a. It is a. Possibly, I don't know the exact origins of it, um, and I. I wonder why there is such a problem in the West. And <laughs> whenever we try to do anything that has like a left structure, whether it's the Occupy uh, mm-hmm. movement and the kind of endless um, discussions and the way in which kind of people find it very difficult to get things done um, in those working groups, um, and you know, after Occupy, then we have the kind of fragmentation of the left into kind of a whole series of uh different modes of identity politics and and so on um you know and we're living in the aftermath of that um and i don't know whether there's a there's a kind of absence of a shared concept i mean which mm-hmm. is why people i suppose like mac alistair mcintyre who, who isn't mentioned by quentin skinner in this lecture but i, I think would be relevant and again the kind of he's he's often at the basis of a sort of post-liberal thought whether you're coming from the left or the center or the right whether you're coming from a a a religious position or a secular position i actually think there's enormous amount of overlap in the critique of liberalism at least um which is the critique of this you know the failures of liberalism um the model of the individual the fact that the human nature is being kind of um, excised and uh, treated as if it was you know, totally malleable and the subject of the market and anyone can do what they like. And as long as, you know, what you want and you can 
do whatever you want to your body and there's no necessarily limitations because it's just to do with your desire, whatever your desire is supposed to be. Um, and it's completely anti-psychoanalytic and it's sort of very um, childish, um, you know, as if we we don't have limitations and if we aren't, uh, as if we aren't beholden and tied to other people, um, but we're mere uh, neutral consumers, you know, the neutered mm-hmm. and neutral consumers. And, and I, I think the left maybe needs to come to terms with um, the question of a form of nature and human nature that it can oppose to the liberal fantasy of the freewheeling um, subject, which is, which you know, and I think the chickens are coming home to roost all over the place, whether we're talking about the sexual revolution, um, you know, the le- part of the left is still promoting an idea that this is somehow uh, a form of emancipation and freedom indeed, um, when I think... Uh, we can see actually how destructive um, the elimination of social bonds, as Helen mentioned, has has been in effect. And actually what it means to turn a consumer into a pure desiring id, um, whether we're talking about pornography or, I, I don't know, con- endless consumption, um, it's absolutely destructive of any form of social um, thinking. Um, and so I, I think the left has a real problem and a real question with uh, nature, whether we're talking about universalism, what it is that unites us, whether it's our lack, whether you know whether there's a negative universality we can talk about, um, whether it's our sort of openness, the fact that we're all, um, you know, with the fact that we all suffer, that's maybe a more slightly religious, uh, potentially religious idea, but I think one that's very useful, um, the fact that we um, we do share things in common, not not the least of which is our uh, positive potential for for mortality um and what is politics in the face of mortality and i think it's interesting to look at someone like alan badgie i'll just finish on this point where he he actually tries very much to um talk about the immortal in man you know against the kind of domin- mm-hmm. domination of finitude which is there from from hobbes onwards you know in a way it's the fear of death that mobilizes the whole of Hobbes is what Hobbes is describing as a kind of um, sovereign politics and the the idea of the contract um and whether we need to think about the relationship between who we are as a species, as the kind of speaking being that we are, um, and a renewed left politics, which might actually need to tap into traditions of thinking teleologically, even like in an Aristotelian way. And Marx has some Aristotelian um, elements, um, but also perhaps accessing these other dimensions like the immortal or the, um, the infinite. Um, because otherwise, as Badu says, we're simply there's simply bodies and languages, um, mm-hmm. and there's nothing and there's nothing else. Yeah, and you know it's funny because I have, I really do think that we need to get back to terms, you know, as in like what is nature and what is human nature and what is human. Un, you know, psychoanalytically, it's the nature of unnature, but it's still a nature in unnature. And it's interesting because you talk about, yeah, these things like Occupy and stuff and and why they sort of disintegrate in the West. And potentially, yeah, there's this thing of um, this legacy of of self-actualization, this perpetual desire to self-actualize and that everybody's platform is for self-actualization and that to contribute is to self-actualize rather than to contribute to something knowing that you don't really matter. But it's interesting because I, yeah, I really just feel like the left and, and um, what do you call it? Uh, Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street onwards, precisely because we have 
denigrated an understanding of basic actual, you know, what are we dealing with? It has just become completely subsumed by the market for self-actualization, for career, et cetera, et cetera. And does the precise opposite of what left-wing politics does. And I, this is where I really um, also would critique this sort of um, group that's emerging of people who no longer call themselves leftists. But it's like, well, why are you, if we, we're talking about actual terms, why are you calling this capitalistic um, thing that uses an aesthetic of the left that isn't really, I think, anything to do with the left if we actually defining what the left is. Why are you calling that the left? It's just not. Um, yes. And I, I think it does come down to an understanding of human nature or unnature. And without that understanding, we can't get a hold on what capitalism actually is and where our unfreedom actually is. And I actually am getting to the stage, I'm almost like, kind of, <laughs> you know, you kind of like reach a point and you sort of land there for a while and maybe change, change your position eventually. But I am sort of like, I feel like the solution is very, very obvious and it's not really a solution, but it is to do with an understanding and almost what's the point of talking anymore because it's like, it seems pretty clear. But anyway, yeah. But, but, but what is the solution? I think it comes in understanding our nature as it relates to the market and our libidinal investment in the market and how we self-sabotage our way to sustaining the market to the extent where we're at a point where value can only be generated through repression. And this is because the state who are made up of speaking subjects who also self-sabotage isn't like, so I was going to go on in my little bit at the beginning. I, I should say that we started recording before and I explained that I'd written it in a rush and it was too long and I was going to edit as I went. And then I probably just jumped around and sounded very unclear. <laughs> I should say this here. But I, was, I have this analogy of, of the merry-go-round, we're on this merry-go-round and, you know, it's all sort of fun. And it's getting faster and faster and faster, precisely because the people who are manning the handles aren't manning the handles. And it's just going off and off and off. And as we are getting faster and faster and sort of ticking, sickening toxic spin, we have to cling tighter and tighter and tighter to the ride of capitalism. And if we slowed down, we'd have to acknowledge our environment and what have you. But nobody is manning the handles. And it seems very obvious that this is a, di a direction issue. What, what state should be directed towards. And to be honest, this is a conclusion I've come to that I actually have discovered is precisely Hegel's understanding as well, which is in understanding what we're dealing with, we can understand that the state should act on behalf of the people and not the market. And that in acting on behalf of the market, it ends in total antagonism. That it's because it's utopian, it has to be sustained by enemy making, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so it's to do with a direction and understanding of the purpose of the organization, as in state, republic, whatever you want to call it. And um, you cannot have a system that relies on an ignorance of antagonism to separate value towards one, one part that will go up and up and up in a certain direction without having rules or arbiters to resist that tendency. You just, you can't do it. And as I said, like when states don't tax, and obviously for various reasons this has happened, so, you know, capital mobility, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you, value is too easy to generate for corporations and therefore becomes more difficult and therefore relies in a form of sacrifice that isn't found in the toil of workers anymore, but in 
just pure repression of people. Yeah, so listening to, to some of these thoughts, um, one thing that I, I think is distinctive is the degree to which republicanism is, is kind of in the continental tradition and really is quite closely linked with Hegel's view, especially in the kind of Aristotelian account that Nina is giving, where you know, for Hegel, freedom is self-realization. And of course, Aristotle gives an account of what it would mean to realize human nature, not so much self, but the human. Uh, and Skinner is, is, goes to careful lengths to distance his version of republicanism from that kind of Hegelian or Aristotelian, uh, Aristotelian view, I think in large part because Skinner is anticipating that in the Anglo world where he's giving these lectures, he's engaging with people who are accustomed to being on the left side of his chart in the negative conceptions of freedom, uh, in the views of people like a Bentham or a Locke. And so he knows that those people are heavily turned off by Hegel's conception and by extension by something like Aristotle's conception. And so he wants to make republicanism acceptable to them. So he frames it in a kind of negative way as non-dependence or as non-domination. And it's been a, a curious way in which this generation mm -hmm. of Anglo political theorists have tried to smuggle this continental idea back into the Anglo discourse through negative language, but, which papers over to a large degree the original kinds of arguments mm -hmm. which Republicans would have made. And they do it in part by heavily emphasizing uh, Latin, Roman, Western texts and de-emphasizing the Greek stuff and the Republicans who draw on the Greek tradition. I mean, Hegel, of course, I think is, is like completely, well, I don't know if the word completely is accurate, but is is misunderstood. As in, you hear lots of people on the left saying Hegel's a conservative, but it's absolutely the precise opposite because Hegel provides a lens to understand our propensity towards the right through the illusion of the left. So, yes, I would agree that there has been a sort of poisoning of the well in the intellectual space in terms of Hegel in his relation to the state and various other items that I feel like I can't even say because the word is associated so much with this liberal understanding that isn't accurate. But I mean, going the other way, I think okay. these people, there are some people who don't like Hegel because they think he's right wing. And there are some people who don't like Hegel because he think they think he's the root of communism and, and the far left and totalitarian leftism. And I think that the, the, the thing about yeah, Hegel is that Hegel upsets everybody yes, yes, yes. In, in the Anglosphere. Everybody yeah, in the Anglosphere has sure. a problem with Hegel. And, and so he, by denouncing Hegel, creates space to bring in this Republican conception that he is framed in such a way that it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with Hegelianism. And indeed, a lot of these Cambridge historians of thought will pitch Hegel as a modern thinker mm -hmm. and this neo-Roman stuff as a revival of the ancient, when of course Hegel himself pitched the German ideal of freedom as an expansion upon a concept of liberty which he acknowledged was Greco-Roman in mm. origin. It's interesting as well because you say it, he does piss everybody off and I've seen people who I respect 
I, from my understanding of Hegel, completely misconstruing it and, th- you know, it's in its psychobabble and it's like, it's really actually quite easy, but you just have to kind of get used to the, the mode of thought. Um, shit, what was I going to say? But um, yes, I just, I, at the same time as alienating everybody, he also alienates nobody. <laughs> as in, I've won a lot of Republicans over to the left through Hegel, let's just say. You can find a lot of centrist liberals who like Hegel. And he's been popular in the academy mm-hmm. in part because if you strip out the materialism, then it can be just an argument for playing with cultural ideas. Yeah, Which it's, is a, it's an interesting point that you made, Benjamin, about how Skinner is framing and positioning all these things. And it's, you know, and it's not, I suppose, the tradition I was um, schooled in philosophically. You know, I mean, I went to Warwick and everyone was totally fine with doing continental stuff. All the, you know, there was no issue about having to smuggle it in or pitch it or frame it. It was, you know, that was just a large part of what was being taught there. And that, that was the way people were thinking. And, um, you know, I mean, even in, in after Hegel in the, in the, you know, in the 19th century, I mean, you have left Hegelians, centrist Hegelians, personalist Hegelians, right Hegelians, young Hegelians, you know, Hegel just kind of generates all of these different positions, or, you know, you can see all of them in there, you can see the Christian Hegel, you could see the, you know, the liberal, you know, post, post Christian Hegel, and so on, and, and obviously what Marx and, they, and then then they do with with Hegel, and also honourable mention to Kierkegaard and his, um, you know, uh, sort of absurdist, paradoxical, literary, um, dialectical relation to Hegel and 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 so on. I mean, what what can you do but be after Hegel? Um, but I think yeah, it's it's the looking backwards then uh, from that 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 point and um, you know back to those ideas of a certain kind of embeddedness and social context and all of those things, which actually make a lot more sense of what it means to 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 be human to live together. Um, and so on. And, and I think one of the, the kind of fundamental problems that we have is this idea that we are modern, you know, that we think that we are so different um, because of technology or the Industrial Revolution or a, a whole series of shifts in the behavior and practice of humanity, or whether we're talking about um, capital, whether we're talking about, you know, various forms of um, domination and bureaucracy. That as if we don't still have the same problems and same questions that, in fact, the ancients in many ways provided more direct answers to precisely because um, they were asking and answering them in a collective way, actually, Mm -hmm. and in a way that made sense of all of these tendencies and possibilities of thought and action and not separating them necessarily out into different disciplines, different sciences. And of course, Husserl and Heidegger talk about this precise, you know, the, 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 the invention of discipline, the invention of division at the level of, of thought. Um, and what would it mean to get back, not to an unbroken whole, not to some kind of, you know, image of a kind of pure organic city state or anything like that, but rather with the knowledge that we have from psychoanalysis, from, you know, when we think about the unconscious through the various mutations that have occurred in the human, but not to the extent that we're no longer mm-hmm. the human beings that were in ancient Greece. And I think, or, or Rome, and and I don't, I, I don't know, I just come up against this all the time. Like, how do we stress the continuity 
even in the face of these um, innovations that that are also part of our nature. That's the thing. It's human nature to to alienate ourselves from mm-hmm. from nature, um, and and to in a way be um, not at home. You know, to actually um, um, be distant from nature is also our nature. And I, I really think one of the like really irritating issues of today is to do with what you're saying, Nina, which is economically from like a political economy perspective slash just a general Marxist reading. It's like so obvious that yes, okay, we're dealing with tech and this is specific issues to it, but we are not so different than at the previous ter- the previous industrial revolution or you know late 19th century US Vanderbilt's Rockefellers, blah blah blah, and that this needs to be broken up with, you know, taxation, antitrust laws, blah da 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 da, to the extent that something like a meta wouldn't be able to exist, and it's just the same shit. But of course, this sort of Silicon Valley, uh, faux emancipation based on sixties culture, whatever, pretends it's something different, but it really isn't very different. Yeah, and I think we we can't underestimate, especially in the United States, the degree to which the old, stupid, uh, we're all Lockeans view is still around, Uh, where you go to school and they go, okay, here are some of the texts that have something to do with the founding of the United States, and they emphasize Locke. And there are all sorts of problems in Locke's arguments. And, and Skinner in this lecture gestures to some of them. There are all sorts of areas where Locke is very nonspecific, where he makes vague appeals to intuitions that he doesn't go into detail about or justify, where he makes flippant claims like the idea that bribery is coercion, which is ridiculous. The idea that if somebody pays you a bribe, you, you are coerced by the fact that they've paid you a bribe, and that's no different from them threatening you with violence. Uh, his, his account of property, which intergenerationally doesn't really work. Uh, but lots of people in the United States present Locke as this kind of great theorist, and everything before Locke is old think. And people who think you need something after Locke just don't understand that it's all in Locke. And then all we need are, are these kind of contemporary libertarian theorists who reinvent Locke, oh. uh, you know, like Robert Nozick, yeah. and that there's not very much else that needs to be done. And in the academy, we've gone a long way to, to demolishing this to the point where I think almost everybody on the left, in the center, on the right, understands that Locke is not enough and there are other things that we need apart from Locke. Uh, but it's still the case at a lot of American universities that Locke is presented as like a big canon theorist who actually explains something about the way that our society is. Uh, in the Cambridge School, there's even been a push to say that Locke is not a modern thinker to define Locke as a parochial religious thinker as a way of further delegitimizing him because everybody is is so sick of the Locke cult in the history of thought. Uh, And I think to a large degree, it's still around. And to a large degree, uh, a lot of people still have not really integrated that, that Locke's view is not sufficient. I think also, I mean, on the question of Locke and God, one of the things that people do forget, I mean, this is not to relegate Locke to a kind of minor religious thinker, but the the whole point about property is not only that our body is our property and therefore we can do what we want with it. And, you know, this idea of a kind of, you know, liberal uh, 
I don't know, the the the, the pre-market liberal individual that becomes the market in a way which you can kind of get from Locke. But Locke also says we should look after our body because it's not actually our property. It also belongs to God, you know. That, it, that we're not just this kind of uh, entity with which we can, I don't know, sell our organs or sell sex or, you know, do what we want with our body. The whole point is that it doesn't actually, in the end, belong to us or it belongs to us, but also uh, to God. And people always miss that out. And so capitalism is in many ways like this kind of a, like locky, lock, locky an idea, but lock without God, you know, and this is a, a truly nightmarish <laughs> thing. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like God, but... God is secularized, yeah, and it's just us. As yeah, horrible, horrible, horrible. Locke is a very incongruous thinker, and he has a lot of different threads which don't really fit together neatly. And American political thought in general resembles Locke in being full of incongruous elements that it's not really self-aware of, which it tends to take for given. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say American, like. American polit- political discourse is hilarious in its contradictions. It really is. And it just, you get these, I don't know, I was just in America recently and you get these sort of two sides saying each other's points at convenient position, at convenient times to justify whatever, like, I don't know, like, is that, that's, that's true, right, Benjamin, that it is just totally contradictory at all times. Yeah, because e- even the things that we think of as Anglo-American political thought, a lot of the the British political thought has not fully been taken up in the United States, let alone continental mm-hmm. thought. And then when continental thought is taken up, it's in this kind of, of pick and choosy way where stuff is grabbed in so far as it fits with pre-existing American narratives or yes. buttresses aspects yes. of American ideology. Uh, and the other, other elements of it are, are not not taken up. Like Arendt, for instance, who became enormously popular in the United States, even though Arendt's model of politics in many ways does not at all fit with uh, the American system. It's not a system in which people have much capacity for action in the Arendtian or Mm. Aristotelian sense. Uh, But because Arendt uh, pitched the idea as if maybe it was compatible and said nice things about the American Revolution, uh, suddenly everybody loves Hannah Arendt. And that similar thing with Tocqueville, because Tocqueville said nice things about America. All of the other mm-hmm. things he says that are critical later on can be de-emphasized, and the things that he says that buttress the project can be taught. Uh, we have this terrible habit of any time a European says something nice about the United States, we teach that, we ignore uh, not just other Europeans, but any other things that the same theorist might have said, which don't fit. It is amazing. You know, these sort of like these um, these memes where you kind of own one side or own the other side or whatever. And you have, obviously, you see this with the, with the gun debate and the abortion debate, where basically whatever side you're on, you're mirroring the abortion debate in your gun debate on the other side. But I saw this, I saw this meme the other day about some, it was like conservatives being owned or something. And it was about... Some woman had said, maybe you guys saw it, a woman had said, like, um, t- please tell me which corporation I can buy stuff from that isn't Marxist. They all seem to be Marxist. And, um, oh, God, I'll see if I can find it because it was quite funny. It was quite funny. But it's like, basically, instead of it being your left-wing ideology in America is not Marxist, it's like the the conservatives somehow justified themselves as being Marxist. And I was just like, yes, this is a self-own. This is a self-own, but not in the way that you think it's a self-own. See if I can find it. Well, every every word at this point that you try to use for something that is beyond left liberal 
is redefined in the United States until it means left liberal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, progressive liberal, any other term that you come up with. Even Marxist at this point, let alone socialist, communist, all of these words in the United States now mean left liberal. And it's just impossible to... I could go on for ages about the ways in which American political discourse, both the popular discourse and the discourse that occurs in many universities, is a a mutilated husk of the Western tradition and, and does not in any way, shape, or form do it justice. But... I suppose this is all a bit of a digression from the original point. It is. And the original point kind of being, what would it mean concretely Mm -hmm. to reintroduce some of these Greco-Roman ideas in a contemporary context, and I think the people who say, oh, there's this huge discontinuity between ancient and modern, they overstate that difference, but they do make some interesting points that we have to contend with, that uh, the, the, the thing they love to do is they love to point out, they like to make the arguments that many uh, theorists like Benjamin Constant made about uh, scale, about uh, to have an ancient republic, you need something that's small, and as soon as it gets big, you, it doesn't work. Or they make arguments about how we are, are the economy is no longer dependent on war fighting or slavery, but on a different economic system, which requires a different uh, a different political system. And and then, of course, they like to challenge uh, uh, challenge folks and say, uh, well. If you're for some kind of of revival of ancient ideas, you must also be for revival of the ancient economic system, which gave rise to those ideas, and therefore to endemic slavery and war. And that's a very quick way Mm -hmm. in which the the defenders of modernity like to bat away any reference to anything that is before Locke or Hobbes or Machiavelli or whichever one they've decided is the one where things start to be okay. But this is this is a, a real problem to do with um, self propaganda or the marketized self. Is you always have to have the correct opinion, so you have to bat away that which is you know doesn't show you to be the pure person who acknowledges the suffering because the do no harm is the master signifier of our age. So you have to be like, oh no, but I'm not for the you know, it's it's very problematic. Hashtag problematic. But I sometimes think this to do with with Britain. I am a British person, although it's hard to say how British I feel. And I spent most of my life not in, say, England, even though I sound like I'm English, whatever. But there is a best and worst of Britishness. And I know that, Benjamin, you've talked about Britain as a concept quite a lot, I think, in interesting ways, in a way that I would agree with. And I do think it is to do with a direction question related to who is this for? What so we talk. So what? again, again, this is like I have to talk about this in a way that I'm like, shit. I better not say the wrong thing because, like, dun, 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 whatever is the wrong thing to say. So we talked about, like, you know, we've talked about. I think on a B side one time we talked about the question of Ireland, right, Northern Ireland, and and Britishness as it relates to this patchwork tolerance question of many things within the whole. But at the same time, we can't deny that there has been a completely reactionary past, and that sort of still exists in a lot of aspects of British culture. This sort of um, classism, um, a sort of a level of purity and arrogance potentially. But that there is an element of Britishness politically 
that is good. And also, by the way, you're talking about um, continental philosophy. I actually feel like the continental is less tolerated in, in the UK than it even is in America often. Um, I don't know how to say this without... But, yeah, I don't know how to say this A, clearly, but B, without sounding uh, like I'm saying the wrong thing. But I, I could be wrong, but I feel like there is something to, in terms of concrete, quote unquote, solutions to do with the direction of concern and the direction of those on behalf of whom the state is acting. That sounds very, very um, ethereal and not concrete. Well, let's try to cash that out. Okay. So, you know, Skinner makes this point that the state ought to be uh, on a Republican concept, uh, acting in terms of this is a different talk he gives. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm referencing a different talk. It's his genealogy of the state. In his genealogy of the state talk, he makes the pitch for this idea that the state is a, a kind of artificial person. Uh, he agrees with Hobbes, but he kinds of positions Hobbes here as, as agreeing also with a lot of ancient theorists, mm -hmm. that the state is a kind of artificial thing which acts for a common good. Uh, and so you have to believe that there is some kind of possibility of a common good to affirm this. Uh, you don't necessarily have to believe that the common good is straightforwardly transparent, that it's easy to know what it is, that you can measure it, that you can quantify it. But you've got to believe that there is some kind of, of notion of there being the good of, of, of the state or the whole. Uh, and I think right now it's very fashionable to doubt the good in general, much less a notion of a common good which goes beyond the good of particular individuals. Uh, and, and particular groups. And to speak of the state as a whole in the first place has often been positioned as inherently unacceptable. A lot of theorists like to say that the state is an inherently old-fashioned 19th century concept, that we should instead be thinking about humanity writ large, and that to think about the state is to think about and privilege the interests of citizens of particular places, uh, and therefore the status of being citizens of particular states. So there is, I think, on the one hand, a set of people who don't believe in any notion of the good. On the other hand, a set of people who are willing to agree to some notion of the good, but only as it pertains to individuals or maybe groups or, or, or peoples, uh, thickly defined as specifically cultured. And then a group of people who only want to talk about humanity and the idea of the good of the state or, the, or a common good, which can be applied at the level of, pol of a political community, has been heavily lost. And I think you know, even a lot of, of Marxists are, are participating in that by suggesting that there are only there's only the good of particular classes, that classes are worldwide and don't have any particular state character to them. A lot of Marxists leave the state out too much. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is kind of, of the, the loss of the state as a concept, which is a point that Skinner makes in this other lecture that I would encourage people to check out, uh, makes it difficult to talk about the good in political terms. 
And so we're instead left with mutilated notions of the good as either an individual thing, idealized notions of it as a vaguely humanistic thing, or nihilists that that just deny it or throw it out. Absolutely. And it's, it's complicated because the market, of course, has, even though it doesn't have a motivation, but there is a relationship to this question that favors the market. And so, of course, it's more di- it, when we are within a market system, it's difficult to think clearly related to this or an, uh, the other side of a concept that is purely denigrated for the purposes of the market. But I'm actually not thinking about the state in terms of the borders of one region per se, or a protected group of people or what, what have you, but just the concept of um, the organization of an economy. The organization of an economy. And what happens if you have an economy without a state? Well, then there's nothing to, to make it work for uh, the good of any particular group of people. Because exactly. if there's no state, then there's nothing that it's connected to. An economy exactly. that's disembodied has no home. And this is our predicament. And then, well, and then we return to that idea of being dominated by the market. So we've kind of, we've, we've started this. We may talk more about it on the B side. We may talk about some other things, but unfortunately we're at an hour. So we're going to have to call it for today. I don't think we've come, we've, we've finished solving this problem. I'm still pestered by it, but maybe that's why I, I need to write about it and, and think about it. And maybe that's a good thing. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you'll join us on the B side and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.